uh, folks as, for example, at the uh, Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, which had its annual conference last Saturday uh, at which August spoke and which is, you know, among the, uh, the, the, the group of, of uh, younger, both veterans and, and others in the defense establishment who are connecting to this project. Uh, th that, that volume um, is a testament in part to the success of the project's experiment employing various forms of crowdsourcing to generate original creative content. Indeed, the very busy uh, agenda, and it's the reason I keep running over my words, is I'm conscious of the fact that we have a lot to get through and we mostly want to hear from the speakers here. Uh, and yet still, I, I feel compelled to take note of, uh, of some items on this busy agenda, which includes the following. Um, uh, recognition of the winner of our most recent creative challenge, uh, a creative challenge which again elicited short stories um, on this theme, on the theme of uh, veterans issues and post-conflict issues of the future, um, a uh, creative challenge, contest if you will, that attracted 50 original short stories uh, from which we have selected uh, one winner with the help of Elliot, uh, who helped uh, 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 great, actually our, two of our panelists uh, got in on, we actually had such an abundance uh, that we had to, to spread the work uh, of, uh, of reading these and evaluating them over the weekend uh, throughout uh, our panel. Um, the winner I will mention is Marika Landau-Wells, uh, who wrote a great story called Remote Operations. This also will be available today on artoffuturewarfare.org. Um, it's, I suppose, worth, worth mentioning, and because I think it resonates with the larger purposes of the project, uh, that Marika is a PhD student in astrophysics? Neuroscience and astrophysics at MIT. Um, so if that teases your interest in her story more than I already have done, I, I hope so. I hope that it does. All right, while marking the end of the project's one, year one, uh, we will promptly turn the page <coughs> to start year two, and in that year, you can rest assured, we will continue advancing that, this mission, both with the proven tactics that we've developed over the first year, um, as well as some, some new ambitions that we'll be reaching for. Among these new ambition, ambitions will be the establishment in Los Angeles of a chapter, if you will, of the project that meets quarterly specifically to more deeply engage uh, in our work the media and entertainment industries in that town. This, this chapter will be centered on our two uh, non-resident senior fellows who live in Los Angeles, uh, Max Brooks, the author of World War Z, and Dave Anthony, the auteur of the, of the Call of Duty uh, uh, video game series. So I, I want to just say one other thing uh, uh, that connects that compilation of short stories to today's event. Um, uh, I wrote, and it may be available to you, uh, I, I hope, uh, a, uh, a critical commentary uh, about, about this that is going to be published, I guess has been now published in Aviation Week. And um, I tried to draw out some of what I saw as the themes stretching across the 10 stories that are in the compilation. And one of them seemed uh, to me especially apropos of, of this conversation. Uh, and particularly so because uh, it's, it, it was a theme or issue that contrasted so sharply with my experience um, in the military in, in the Cold War. I was an army officer uh, serving in Germany in the mid 80s, where um, uh, let's say the social adhesion um, inundation of, of social uh, life and relationships was actually one of the uh, most powerful and en enduring features of my service. By contrast, by contrast with that uh, maybe 20th century experience uh, of, of a veteran, um, uh, one of the really striking themes about these stories of the future is the degree of both physical isolation and even, permit me, psychic alienation that these soldiers and, and sailors and airmen of the future experienced in so many of these stories. 
that's something which perhaps I, I've encouraged the panel to take up um, in, their, in their discussion. And uh, I, I hope also that it, it too will tease your interest in, in uh, downloading uh, that volume and, and taking a look at it. Okay, so getting to the matter at hand, I want to thank and now introduce, I want to thank w Words After War, uh, a great organization that has been instrumental to helping us put this panel together. Um, I'm going to introduce David Eisler, who's program manager and board member of Words After War. He's going to come up, say a few things about his organization, and also introduce um, our keynote speaker. Uh, David is a writer himself and a veteran himself. He served in the, uh, uh, as an army captain in Germany. Well, what, what a coincidence. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, less coincidental. He grew up in Florida, studied astronomy and physics. Ah, there's a theme here. Uh, at Cornell and is currently finishing his master's in international affairs at Columbia University. David, thank you and thanks very much to Words After War. I appreciate it. Do you want to hold this or shall I put it back there? Yeah, all right. All right. Thank you very much, Steve, and, and thank you, August, and thank you to all the panelists. I, I should update my bio a little bit. I graduated last year, and I've been at the Institute for Defense Analyses for the last year and a half, so I am connected to the policy community as well as trying to be interested in the fiction part of it. Um, as Steve mentioned, Words After War uh, is, a, is an organization with uh, a very interesting mission to bring together military veterans and civilians that uh, to look at war and conflict through the lens of literature. So we kind of fit into a different niche when it comes to uh, a lot of the other veteran writing projects that you may have seen out there. Um, we, we pride ourselves on bringing together military and civilian perspectives on these kinds of events. Uh, this is a very exciting day for us, despite the fact that it's nice and gloomy outside, which is maybe a perfect time to think about the future of warfare. It's like it puts you in the right mood for it, at least it does for me. Um, this is our first DC event, um, which is not insignificant. Uh, August and I talked about doing something like this a long time ago. It's been maybe about a year since we really thought there's a need to bring the, the writer's perspective to the thought about the art of future warfare. And in particular, the writer's perspective to what happens to those who serve, what happens to those who are asked to serve uh, in an all-volunteer force going, going forward in, in future warfare. So uh, one of the other things about Words After War is that we believe in the power of fiction to inform the perspectives of policymakers. And for those of you who are here, you've probably spent enough time in policy circles and you know that uh, although the matters at hand are, are incredibly important, the writing about them is often flat and uninspiring. Uh, imagining the consequences of future war, or even a current one, is difficult to do in the abstract. But exploring those consequences through the eyes of characters with thoughts and feelings and emotions can illuminate these issues in a way that a white paper never could. Um, on a more personal note, the, the theme for the story collection, or the, the story contest that accompanied this event, was uh, set in the 2040s. And I was thinking to myself uh, yesterday, trying to figure out a way to talk about this, until my three-month-old son threw up on me and I lost my train of thought. And I realized in 25 years, in 2040, my three-month-old son will be 25. When I was 25, I'd already served in two different conflicts. And only now, recently, in the last year or so, couple years, has veteran, veterans issues really come to the forefront of the American discourse when it comes to warfare. So it really takes an important perspective to think about these types of issues for the future. And thinking about what a future war might look like is in many ways the easy part. But thinking about how it affects those we ask to fight them and what happens after, that's the true test of a writer's imagination. And with that, I'd like to introduce uh, our keynote speaker, Dr. Linda Schwartz, the Assistant Secretary for Policy and Planning in the Office of Public Affairs at the VA. Uh, Dr. Schwartz has a history supporting veterans and veterans issues. 
she served in the Vietnam War as a member of the United States Air Force, both active and reserve. Um, she retired in 1986 after sustaining injuries in an aircraft accident while serving as a U.S. Air Force flight nurse. And after, the military, after her military service, she earned a master's in nursing from Yale and went on to achieve a doctorate in public health from the Yale School of Medicine through the VA Vocational Education Program, which I know many of you are familiar with. I know I certainly am. So thank you, Dr. Schwartz, and thank you to all of you for coming today. Well, um, first of all, it's really good to be here. Um, I also wanted to say that before I became the uh, Secretary of, Assistant Secretary of Veterans Affairs, uh, I was the Commissioner of Veterans Affairs uh, for the state of Connecticut for 12 years. I, so, I served three governors, and uh, I was in charge and, and responsible for all of the veterans, not VA. I worked for the governor. So I was in a position to augment whatever VA did. But I have been an activist and an, for a long time, uh, coming out of the fact that I was in an accident and that uh, I was married and I had a six-year-old uh, daughter and I didn't live near a VA hospital and I didn't know my telephone number. I could not drive a car. Um, I really kind of, my veterans back in Connecticut say, uh, this was kind of like boot camp for me uh, in the job that I now have. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was just back in Connecticut. Thank you for making this podium just right for me. <laughs> it rarely happens. Um, I wanted to say that yesterday was Veterans Day, but before that I was in Connecticut. We dedicated our state memorial uh, for the first time in this history since 1772, when we've had uh, troops in Connecticut, we actually now have a memorial. And so it was a time for me to reflect not only on the past, uh, but on the future and also on your charge to me. And I hope I make that uh, charge. You know, it's been 70 years since we've had World War II. It's 62 years since the ceasefire in Korea and 50 years since Vietnam. And we have been at war since 1990. How, how, how far we have come, but how much we have remained the same. Last night, I visited your world. I went to Toaster Town, and I, vis I visited Australia, met uh, rovers, and learned about the power of love that can transcend even the darkest situations. I read about technology, but I also read about the meaning of relationships, feelings, and some very dark behavior. Echoes of the vo uh, voices of wars of the past can be detected in all of this. The commonalities of the experiences of man's inhumanity to man starts with uh, when we learn about Greek mythology and the great courage and the Roman conquest and many grand odes to selfless sacrifice. We've come a long way uh, from Tennyson's charge of the light brigade. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. And also somewhat of the romanticizing of war in World War I, with proud thanksgiving a mother for her children England mourns for her dead across the sea. Flesh of her flesh, they were spirit of her spirit, fallen in the cause of the free. 
War was also an adventure in World War I. We had Sergeant York, Medal of Honor recipient. We had the Gathering of Eagles about the Air Corps. And we watched Lawrence of Arabia. And we also had a song about the Red Baron, but we really didn't look deeper than his flying prowess. World War II was a mobilization of the nation, and I have to say that um, it was a different turn. Uh, if you look back at the movies of that genre, that era, uh, there's one called uh, Stage Door Canteen. And everybody in the movie, everybody, even the bussers at the canteen, are wearing uniforms. Uniforms were like, I'm in, and I'm with it. Did you know that John Wayne never went to war? but he inspired thousands to go to war. He looked good in a uniform. And Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War II, became a movie star. He was a cowboy. But did you know that from the day he came home, every night he slept with all the lights on in his house and a loaded 45 by his side? the most decorated man in the World War II. Korea was brutal. Korea was small in comparison to World War II, and Truman called it a police action, which kind of diminished the standing. He did that to make it more palatable for public consumption. And life went on in America, and often people didn't even think about the war. The veterans came home and quietly quelled their memories and sacrifices at the Legion of or VFW, America turned a cold shoulder to these few, and life went on in America. I want to suggest to you that it was not until the Vietnam War that the romance of war faded into the reality of the violence of war and those who faced the challenge of serving the military. This was very different. Today we hear that 1% of the people, the population in America is serving in uniform, 9.6 million Almost 8% of the population served in uniform during that time. America practiced something called conscription, which precipitated an entire anti-war movement with, with teeth. Conscription is also known as the draft. There was no, one, no singing, send the word that we were, uh, the Yanks are coming till it's over over there. There was no jazzed up bugle boy of Company C. We marked our progress by body counts. The average age of the, age of the soldier was 18. That means that there were as many under the age of 18 as there were over the age of 18. And when the casualties started coming home, even VA was not accepting them they, because they were not serving in war. Truth. I was, a, I was a nurse in Japan. I took care of battle casualties. And they were coming into the military hospitals, but the VA would not take them. They were just backing up. And the VA was not ready for them when they did. Has anybody seen the movie Born on the Fourth of July? I want to tell you something. As a nurse over in Japan, we, my mother gave me a subscription to Life magazine as a present. Many of the issues were missing because if we had known what was happening back here, we didn't have TV, 
We, did, we didn't. We had radio, and I can tell you that it was Armed Forces Network. Um, and I just want to finish the thought that if we had known what was happening to these young men and women that we were sending home, it would have broken our hearts because we were fighting as hard as we possibly could to bring them home safe so that they would have a life. All of a sudden, these issues were missing, and we never knew. So I, our, um, our mail was censored. Our letters were read. There were no packages from home. And I can tell you this, uh, we also used to gather in the evening around the radio, because that's what we had, and uh, listen to Armed Forces Network, and we could listen to Johnny Carson. And then when Johnny Carson started to get a little bit sassy about Spiro Agnew, the next night we were listening to Fibber McGee and Molly. Something snapped in all of us when we came home. And the romance of war was gone. And I want to just um, read a, a portion of a book called Home from the War by Jay Lifton, because I think he captured what I'm trying to say. Consider once again the extraordinary Washington scene in April 1971 when a group of Vietnam veterans returned their medals to the leaders of the country that had honored them. These veterans did not appear politely at the office of the senator or a general. They did not return the awards quietly. Rather, they threw them at the Capitol steps, the way one might throw a baseball or football or, yes, a hand grenade, but with greater anger. They were still warriors, and their behavior reflected some of the commendable characteristics of the warrior ethos. One of those was courage, traditionally expressed in battle, but now in daring to reveal to their people what only they could reveal. Another was loyalty, traditionally a willingness to serve country and flag, now in the insistence that their country confront its own descent into evil, and return its professed principles. Still another characteristic is love of one's fellow warriors, still present in their angry remembrance of dead comrades as they cast away their medals. And another is love of one's people, now revealed in the demand for the return to truth and honor. And finally, there is the warrior hero's commitment to the highest purpose of collective renewal, always murky in war, but never more luminous than in Vietnam veterans' denunciation of war. Poetry was big at the time, not the flowers and hearts and love, but I had a friend named Steve Mason who was crowned, really, the Poet Laureate of Vietnam Veterans. And he kind of talked about something that many of you who went to war might be able to relate to. He said, since Vietnam, I have run a zigzag course across the open fields of America, taking refuge in the inner cities, from MacArthur Park to Washington Square, from Sentinel Park to DuPont Circle, on the grassy urban knolls of America, I have seen an army of combat veterans hidden among the trees veterans of all our recent wars, each a part of the best of his generation, waiting in his teeth for peace. I have seen them in the quiet dignity of their aloneness, singly in the confidence of their own perspective, 
and always at the edge of the clearing. Patrolling like perimeter guards or observing as primitive gods, each in his own way looks out to the park that they might see into the truth. And we also, for the very first time, I have to tell you that I knew women in the military had made it when Dan Rather pronounced the men and women serving in uniform. What a victory that was because during Vietnam until a long, uh, 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 many of the uh, early days, women were not mentioned. But I would like to say that over 265,000 women volunteered for service during the Vietnam War. Many of us were nurses. But there were a lot of women who came just as they believed in this country. It was always the men that they talked about. And I once asked Morley Safer, what, what about, why didn't you say anything about the nurses? He said, well, you know, a 17-year-old flying helicopter is news. A nurse during a job is not. But I wanted to tell you that the nurses spoke up. And for the first time, people heard what it really means to be in war. Your bleeding wouldn't stop. The doctor kept yelling for blood, but I was frozen, your hand in mine. You kept calling for your mother. I regret I didn't know you. I can't tell your mother I was there. Perhaps she would feel some comfort. I felt none. I regret I didn't take your dying, broken, dirt-covered body into my arms for her, for you for me. Your name, your unknown name, keeps running through my mind. Your wounds, your crying for help, your pleading eyes will haunt me until my own death. It was only a matter of minutes then another wounded soldier took your, took your place, and then another, and another, and another. Yet perhaps somehow I knew, I hope you knew, I was there for you. And in Japan, we had casualties as they were coming to understand and understand the true nature of their uh, injuries and some also their impending death. We don't have that now. I mean, I am so proud of the AIRVAC system that can bring somebody that was in a firefight uh, in, in Afghanistan back here to Bethesda in three days, but many of them stayed with us for weeks because they were just too weak to travel. And because the war was unpopular or because people wanted to try to do something, they had a program where they would bring the mothers and fathers, if they wanted to come, to sit with their sons as they were dying. We had a lady who came from in the middle of Alabama, never been on a plane. She came to our hospital, and this is what her son's nurse wrote. And I think you might see some similarities in what you have chosen, some of the readings that you have. As I sit here and slowly watch you die before my eyes, it makes me realize how cool we've been in trying to save you for this life, when it would have been better had we let nature take its course. Forgive us, Clem. We have failed our mission to save you, but the best I can do is to leave you in peace and tranquility, making your last day on earth a bearable one. 
for your mother who sits here beside you and also watches you slip away from her. We can only console her as best we can. So to the question, does literature affect the future? There was no PTSD during the Vietnam War, but there was post-traumatic stress. There was no military sexual trauma, but there were sexual assaults and harassment. There was no welcome home. We made sure that when those that followed us would be, they would have a better one in the future. And we had no family life. Do you know that if a woman became pregnant while she was in the military, she had to leave? She was not allowed to stay. And that only, by law, only 2% of the, pop, of the uh, force could be women. So we did not have families. But today, almost 85% of the people that go to war and are deployed have families. So it's a new nuance. We could not wear our uniforms on the streets of the country we swore to defend. But I want you to know that every time I see somebody walking down the street in a uniform, I am very proud of the fact because in a way, it tells me that we, the Vietnam veterans, helped to win that battle. We made our own memorial. We laid out for all to see the 58,227 names of those who died. And that is an awesome, awesome, sign in the middle of Washington, D.C. I have seen my own mother look at those and just cry because, you know, someone asked me, during Vietnam, did, did they lower the flag every time someone came home? Did all the politicians roll out like they do now? I can tell you that in Connecticut, we had 630 deaths. If we had had the flag at half-staff, it would have been there for eight years. No, we did not. We went to war for better care. We taught America that it is not the soldier to be blamed for the war. We kept faith with the past. And I want you to know that one of those gentlemen that was throwing his medals on the Capitol steps is now our Secretary of State, John Kerry. I tell the story of Chuck Hagel, who just stepped down as the Secretary of Defense, talking about being on a roadside where his brother is laying unconscious next to him. They have been attacked. And that he tells you, I made a promise to myself that I would only support a war when there was no other way but war. And also Secretary Shinseki who really did revolutionize the VA, whether you want to give him credit or not. And also John McCain, who has steadfastly supported the troops because they were on the other side of this picture. We also vowed never again would one generation of veterans turn its back on another. And I challenge you all, you, you uh, veterans of today, we did not sugarcoat war. We told it like it is. Did we affect change in future wars? Only you, the veterans of today, can answer that question. And I would just like to say something. Um, as commissioner, I had emails coming from people in the field. 
and I got an email from a young man who had been injured, and he said to me, I'm looking, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to go home, I got a Purple Heart, I'll be out. so what have you got for me? And I said, well, go to our website, and you can read all about it. He wrote back the next day, that is for old guys, that is not for me. What have you got for us? And so I said, well, um, when, when you come home, come see me. What do you want? I want a house. I want an education. I want a job. Unfortunately, before he came home, he, he died. But I have told myself that he gave me my marching orders. And so as I serve you today, those are my marching orders. Thank you. Oh, okay. Oh. See a few familiar faces in the crowd and some new ones, thankfully, which is a big part of the Art of Future Warfare Project's goal. I'd like to thank Words After War uh, for bringing such great writers into our company and for Assistant Secretary Schwartz for taking time out of a certainly busy week to address, I think, is one of the most important issues that is not being talked about. But how will we address the veterans' issues of future wars? Technology is changing faster than we can come to grips with. Uh, that's true in the civilian sector. It's true in the military. You know, this event was very much inspired by a novel uh, by William Gibson called The Peripheral. Uh, it opens up with a recounting of a Marine veteran's uh, glitching. It had haptics meaning man-machine interface during his service and suffers the after effects uh, after his war has, has ended. Technology is an important theme, both in our remote operations story that we crowned our winner, again, the best out of 50 entries, which is a wonderful sign that people took time to write such excellent work. We'll be putting more of those on the website itself. But what I'd like to do uh, is to take advantage of the time we have and the expertise and the insight of our panelists is I'll go down the, the row and have each author talk a little bit about their own works, but also in the context of this question. How do we get ahead of the next post-traumatic stress disorder? How do we anticipate TBI when we have man-machine interface? As Steve has pointed out in his Aviation Week column, which I suggest you all read, the man-machine interface that is being explored and really uh, endorsed by the Defense Department is gonna have implications that we have yet to understand. Max, I'd like to talk to you a bit about technology, because this is such a part of the high schoolers in Echo of the Boom that scared the heck out of me as someone who has young daughters, <laughs> understanding what their social lives, but also where they will find their emotional uh, centers of gravity, both whether it's in peacetime or wartime. So maybe talk a little bit about your book and why it helps us answer yeah. this question. So um, my first novel, Echo of the Boom, was largely about uh, the psychological experience of, of kids way younger than me growing up during the War on Terror in a way that also sort of coincided with being the first generation of digital natives. You know, sort of, I'm 29, and I remember old telephones. <laughs> you know, I, I sort of, and, and my coming up with technology sort of was growing up as the technology was growing up, whereas sort of children who were born, you know, as I say the first sentence of the book, after the fall of the wall, but before 9-11 had a radically different experience. And one of the things that was sort of, very interesting in, in that is it, uh, it gave me a really big window into how social networks and video games were sort of playing a role in people's perceptions of conflicts and also playing a role in 
veterans coming home <laughs> and then sort of using those technologies in ways that were sort of very interesting. So that's the short version. That's great. Yeah. Now, Gail, with Ashley's War, you've focused on uh, female soldiers serving with the Ranger Regiment. Could you talk a bit about the book uh, sure. and sort of its relevance to the question? Sure. Ashley's War is a story that I tried not to write, uh, but there are stories in life that attack you and really won't let you rest until you tell them. And I nonfiction. And I realized very quickly when I did the first set of interviews for what was going to be a piece and then became a book that this was a story we hadn't heard before. Um, I was entirely ignorant of the fact that there had been an all-women team recruited to go on Ranger and SEAL missions in 2011 while the combat ban remained very much in place and that there was a whole group of women who had been serving and dying alongside Rangers for years with almost nobody in America knowing and I had three questions, you know, who were these people? What were they doing there? And how in the world don't we know that they exist? And it really became the ultimate story of friendship uh, among women in the least likely place on the special operations battlefield. But it was also a story about an evolving Ranger Regiment and an evolving special operations community that also hadn't gotten credit for its own evolution and all of the warfare it had been asked to fight by a country that was more or less divorced from the reality of its days and nights. And so what I wanted Ashley's War to do was to just shine a flashlight and to take people into this world of friends who became teammates and teammates who became family when their country asked. And they happened to be women. They happened to be breaking ground. But uh, two caveats to that. One, women had been doing these roles for years in one-offs, right? Women who had been medics or convoy drivers or um, you know mechanics had somebody said, hey, we need a female come out with us on this patrol, come out with us on this operation. Uh, the second thing is that um, they really and truly were forever changed by that experience. Um, in, for them, being part of the special operations community in that kind of direct action role, while the world had no idea they existed, and while the conventional army really hadn't had an understanding of what they'd been doing, uh, and then after 12 months to have to go back to that role as if it had never happened, um, was really a psychic dislocation too. I mean, it was really a shift in um, who fights our wars and why. And so I wanted it to be a look inside friendship and warfare and love, all set against the backdrop of the special operations fight in which 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 deployments were not at all unheard of. They were shortened deployments, but that's still three to four years of combat. Um, in a constantly shifting battlefield. And I wanted Ashley's War to humanize that and to take people who may never have read a war story into that world. So Elliot, in Green on Blue, you've taken on the Afghan war, which uh, from a young Afghan boy's point of view, uh, as a Marine veteran as well, you have a perspective that is on both sides of the, of the narrative. Talk a bit about the, the book and again, this kind of question of not only how do our service members experience post-conflict life, but civilians in, in war zones as well. Sure. Um, so I served as a Marine Corps officer for eight years. So uh, 
I fought in Iraq as a very conventional rifle platoon commander um, and then went to Afghanistan uh, and served a number of tours in Afghanistan working in Marine Special Operations and my job was basically to act as an advisor to, uh, to Afghan units, specifically Afghan commandos. So you know, in many respects, my, the war I fought and my war buddies weren't a bunch of Americans, they were a bunch of Afghans. And upon coming back, you know, I very much wanted to try to render the war um, you know, as I thought the Afghans saw it. You know, as we sit here, I mean, particularly the war in Afghanistan, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Um, you know, we're 15 years into these wars, and we haven't. It's the reason that they haven't been, you know, won isn't because we haven't managed to figure out the right sort of tactical combination. It's not because we're not bombing well enough or or killing people efficiently enough with technology. I mean, these wars um, are really they've become systemic. Um, they, in many respects, have become self-serving. And I wanted to sort of examine the incentive structure that leads people to fight wars that are being, that are being engaged in for every reason but the ending of the war. Um, and if you went to Afghanistan, if you went to Iraq right now, there's no one walking around those battlefields who has any type of illusion that in the next year or two, you know, if we can only push them across you know, one more valley, that the war is going to end and everybody's going to go home. So what are these wars? What are they about? Um, what's the nature of them? So that's sort of what the novel gets into, and it gets into it um, in the f from the first-person perspective of a young Afghan man uh, who goes off to fight in a militia. So Assistant Secretary Schwartz, you know, our panelists have perspectives on technology, uh, new uh, actors, uh, women on, in high-intensity combat operations, and as Elliot said, the notion that there is no end in sight uh, for both our uh, forces in, in Afghanistan, for example, and also the, the local population. With the mission of the VA and the tools that it has, you know, our short stories, particularly our contest when remote operations, talked about integrating, for example, AI and almost pervasive monitoring into the, the veteran who's returned home to you know, adjust medicines, to monitor with biofeedback health. You know, technology is, is obviously talked about and seen you know, in the creative sense as, as a solution to some of these things or a facet, but what really is the future going to be like in light of what we've just heard? Well, as you know, um, last year the uh, Congress passed a new law called the Access uh, to uh, Care for Veterans. Um, I think that the generation itself will set the tempo, and the tempo we're already getting is that we're not going to, you know, my father's day, he would say, I'm going up to the Brexville VA, I'll see you tomorrow, because it was like, okay. And then everybody was thinking, well, uh, you know, this is free, this is free health care. And I actually did feel that way, even though I was pretty, uh, when I got a chance to go to Yale and get my doctorate, I thought I was the luckiest person in the world. But then somebody reminded me that I paid a mighty high price for this, this help to get a degree. So I see that technology will come into place, and it is in many respects. Um, you know, uh, some of the, um, the monitoring, we actually have phones that can monitor people in their houses. Uh, is it studied to be effective? I mean, do we know if the technology is getting us towards better care? Well, telemedicine is really a big thing, and it, it, it helps to spread the expertise of veter uh, VA um, clinicians into every home and city, and um, it is... Believe it or not, I, I being a hands-on nurse, had my doubts. Mm. But many of our veterans, especially the younger generations who are kind of in, into this, uh, I love it, although I'm not in your generation. I love it that my doctor will text me and say, OK, we got your blood work. <laughs> Call me. 
things like that. It's, it's or, um, you know, uh, we've been looking to have you come for an appointment. Things like this is getting new into VA. And I think it's incredulous because I don't want you to think that we think we're very clever. Mm -hmm. I just want to put the, for the record to say I, I, this is the end of my first year. I just got out of my rookie year. So, uh, but we have a new undersecretary for health, David Shulkin, who sat at a meeting one day and said, I know you all think you're clever, but they've been doing this on the outside for about 20 years. So this is the, this is the fight that you bring to us, that we have to, I, I, I believe with Secretary McDonald, it is a much broader scope of looking at, okay, focusing on the veteran, not do we uh, schedule you because that's when we want to work or do we want to schedule you when you want to be scheduled. And this access to care, having care in the community, uh, is, is really an important thing. Part of that law said that if, if the person doesn't have a car, if the person is not capable of driving, right. I mean, we have veterans coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan with traumatic brain injuries being asked to drive down 95 to visit the West Haven VA. I, I, I didn't want them on the road. Sure. But now there is a better way, and, and it's, it's almost on a roll, okay? So with the, one of the, you know, I, I have to say that we, um, we meet with the Department of Defense to talk about the exchange of uh, medical records. And uh, they ask us, what, is your, what, 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 what would you prefer? I said, well, you know, I remember that uh, President Clinton told us we could have a little card with our whole medical record on it, and that's that we could carry ourselves. And that's my preferred method, but that was a long time ago, and it's not happening. So you have, you have people that want to move the agenda. You have people that want to stymie the agenda. You have many people, uh, I, I love the comment about perpetuating war for war's sake, not necessarily. And, and in many respects, some of this lies along those lines. So, so in, in again, the quest for this innovation edge, the conversation that's happening at the OSD level, does the VA have a role, do you think, in that? I mean, just sort of a yes or no, in, in, again, helping anticipate, because not only for our own needs, but really our allies, too? Yes. <clears throat> Actually, um, I co-chair a committee that is um, right up my alley. Uh, my co-chair is Dr. Geis from the Department of Defense, and our task is to make sure uh, that we create a network of care that when people are leaving the military and coming home to their homes, that they have everything that they need lined up for them. And that um, we know that, we hope and pray, that the rush on that kind of care uh, is not imminent. Mm -hmm. About 20,000 people every year have to leave the military for some injury, uh, some illness, or some um, casualty. So we want to perfect that so that if we do sure. have casualties, because it's not in hospitals anymore, and I think that's another thing that- Well, the signs may not be outward and visible or detectable, right? Right. So, Max, you know, one of the things that as uh, social media becomes more immersive, you know, we're seeing the first inklings of virtual reality. Uh, that is a, a both very empowering, you know, force in people's individual lives. But how do you think that's going to affect uh, reentry and reintegration in future conflicts? I mean, to to use the Gibson quote, the future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. I I, I think that's already happened, and I think that um, 
it's radically changed the way veterans have sort of associated around themselves. You know, that's become sort of a fascinating collection of niche communities built around different things that have found, in some cases, radically different ways to reintegrate. Um, one of the examples that uh, I found that really stunned me was um, one of the most difficult, uh, like most realistic military war games is this game Arma 3 that is very niche and has this community. And the thing that's fascinating is at its highest level, the most sort of like elite people in this game are, are mostly vets who are playing this sort of hyper real war game and um, primarily not for the violence but for the social teamwork of it. And have built this sort of like fascinating network within this game where they sort of get this social experience. Um, and one of the most fascinating things about talking to sort of a few people I know who are in that community is how much that's created these other social networks. And, what's, and that's within the context of this like virtual world. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, and what's interesting about that to me is it, it, uh, it can help in certain cases with a sort of military civilian divide, but it can also create sort of further nichification, right? Or further sort of uniqueness of experience, sort of if you have these accessible virtual worlds or communities. Um, and, and that's a really interesting problem that sort of things can fracture more and more in ways that help people build connections, but it can be harder to create a sort of united experience. You know, your point about communities is interesting in the, in the context of the US military, and maybe Gail and Elliot, you can talk to this, that within the special operations community, which has a different uh, t mission tempo, that does it have acute medical needs that are distinct from the uh, conventional forces? And is that going to change, again, as technologies are integrated faster, perhaps, into many of those units from, from the research that you did for Ashley Zor and Elliot, from your experiences? Do you have some insights that you could share on, along those lines? Oh, you start. Yeah, sure. I think that um, you know one thing that isn't necessarily evident is that the in the special operations community, oftentimes the uh, deployments are shorter, but they're higher iterations. Um, right when I before I left sort of that line of work, I was with a unit where we our, our op tempo was seventy days deployed, fifty days at home, and it's been shown that it's the transitions that actually can cause most of the the biggest disruption. I remember going into that cycle, I thought you know, this will kind of be nice. I'm never going to have to be gone for seven or eight months. And, uh, and I was never gone for seven to eight months, but I was also never home because as soon as I got off the plane, you know, I'd relax for a week and then I would be thinking about going back out um, the door again. So, um, so I think that, yeah, I think there's real challenges in the special operations community uh, in that regard. And I think Admiral Olson, when he was still there, were talking about the force praying, you know, that there was really taking a toll on people and you see that, I mean, uh, I don't mean to be dark because I feel like I, I have a grim tone to it. I think there's also a really hopeful sense that these are people who sign up to serve something that matters to them, that matters a great deal, and that their country has asked them to do. And I think there is a real sense of purpose that is derived from being a part of that community, however you feel about the mission. right? And, and uh, But what you see is a lot of people who, um, struggle to come back because what we have asked as the country is so unimaginable 
to 99.5% of us, right? That up-tempo of being out on, on those kinds of operations, of nighttime combat operations in this particular case, every single night for you know three to four months on end. Or if it's not every single night, then pretty close to every single night. And in Ashley's war, and this is something I really haven't uh, I'm so glad for this occasion to discuss it, but we haven't really had a good forum for it, is that the dislocation was even greater because um, their initial deployment was nine months, even though they were serving with uh, ranger uh, platoons that were usually three to four month deployments. So they would just get used to working with the team and then a new team would rotate in and they would need to prove themselves all over again because they were new to that team once more. And so there was this constant not only trying to do your job well, but also trying to fit in and trying to explain when you went home what it was that you had done. Because with this rotation, there was no military occupational system. There's no MOS, right? They would come back and they were, you know, one of them had gone from doing, I think, 90 plus um, uh, missions in you know an X month period to five days later being in a cubicle right. with everybody wondering well where you been you know really people would come and say what, what have you been doing and there was no way to explain it and they also as all of you would know right nobody wants to talk about you know, make themselves sound like they've done more than they did. So they kind of would, you know, give a short answer. And besides, nobody knew that program really existed beyond a very small group of people. So I think that lack of community, I think, reinforced um, a broader set of issues with the biggest salve, the biggest savior, the biggest healing was one another. And that was, as a storyteller, the thing that brought me in immediately, speaking of technology, is that this group of people had become each other's rabbi and priest and confessor and divorce therapist and family therapist and baby shower host and you know uh, wedding guest coordinator. Um, they were one another's family, in part because no one else knew where they were at a time when women weren't there. So I, I think the, the issues are actually pretty similar for men and women, but it's even more so when you aren't, when no one knows what you've done. You know, one of the short story entries we received called Hulgard the Guardians talks about this issue in that the military in this future world that is set up in the 2040s, the writer uh, Craig Whiteside you know, posits essentially a further isolation and segregation for security reasons within American society. But what it also has done is taken people who are no longer on combat or active duty in, uh, in those uh, deployable roles or integrated with military families themselves. So I might actually end up in your family as sort of a you know, fifth, uh, third parent, so to speak. Yeah. And that that kind of uh, almost tribal aspect is further yeah. exemplified. So there's a technological track that we, we take in thinking about reintegration or medicine. But there sounds like there's a very human element, too. Absolutely. And I think if we lose that, we lose what it is that I think provides the most powerful community that technology can enable that, but it's the person mm -hmm. to person contact. I mean, I remember doing an interview with one, one uh, ranger who is still active duty, but in another role, uh, who did 12 deployments, uh, blew out his knee working uh, in, while serving in Iraq. And you saw that, and he told me point blank, I felt much more at home in Balad than I did in Columbus. Right. Elliot, what do you think about that? You know, I, I mean, I think this whole conversation is sort of predicated on this idea that we are moving towards these technological solutions to veterans' problems that we have today. So they're going to be problems that we're dealing with in 15 years because we're still fighting these wars. And I'm sorry, like, I, if we're still fighting these wars in 15 years, I don't want to live here. You know, I mean, seriously. My, you know, I have a son who's three years old. 
If in 15 years he's going to be 18, and if he's going to Syria or Iraq or you know or the Islamic State to fight, and you know and the conversations we're having are informing the care he's going to get the VA, then we as a society has completely and totally failed. And there's a saying when you're in the military. I mean, anyone who's been in an infantry unit is you know when you're in a firefight. They teach you very early on that, like, you know, if someone gets shot, let the corpsman deal with it. But everyone else needs to keep fighting. And it's tough to keep fighting if the guy next to you just got shot. You know, you want to help him. He's your buddy. They say, you know, the best first aid is, you know, five, five, six is to keep shooting. And I just think it's important when we're talking about, you know, VA care and how are the ways we can reintegrate our society to accept the veterans who are returning from war. I mean, the best solution is to just stop having the wars, you know, and how do, and how do we get to that point? Uh, and I, I, you know, I hope in places like that that they, you know that fundamental to that is the fundamental part of the conversation. And you know, we end the way at the country. If you look historically, we've done a bad job. I mean, it's almost it's like a generational skew. You know, the children of the soldiers who fought in the first world war fought in the second. The children of the soldiers who fought in the second world war fought in Vietnam, and the children of the soldiers who fought in Vietnam have fought in these wars. So, like, when does that cycle end? Um, I don't know. I hope it ends with my son. I think one of the um, one of the things that makes it a little different is the all volunteer force. Of course. Okay, and so therefore you have what is going on in uh, the Defense Department and what is going on uh, on the battlefield is not as open. There's you know it's very much controlled. Mm -hmm. So because at the root of all of this, they need to now find people who will take your place. And it's in the National Guard, uh, you know, your rank, uh, the amount of resources that you have is all predicated on whether you are ha your manning document is complete and full. So, so in, in, in today's wars, people who might not have uh, really uh, w wanted to go to war are almost because the uh, economic conditions is very, very, uh, you know, attracted to them to join. So you have, we don't want to tell everybody, uh, I think you remember maybe a couple years ago that they had a big flap about showing the number of coffins that were coming home. In a, of course. Right. Do you know that during Vietnam they used to just stack them up in the 141s and bring them home? Nobody, nobody really, you know, nobody really wanted to even make it look nice. It was just, that's the reality of war. But now we, we, want, we want all the people who are seeing this to think of it as something else. So I, I echo your hope for peace. And I think that uh, one of the things about it, though, what you brought up that I think is very, very important is that as, as a healing um, force, it is the personal and, and professional, personal being if you were a ranger. I think about the special forces. They have their own organization. They're gonna take care of each other in war and in peace. The Marine Corps League, people are joining these organizations. They're not, I hope there's nobody from the VFW or the American Legion here. They're not joining the Legion. They're not joining these uh, groups as our fathers did. And uh, they want to be with people like them. Well, there's also groups like Team Rubicon, which, are, right, which is right. now expanding globally uh, and is through, again, using kind of distributed communications, organizing to do disaster response uh, in a civilian sense to provide that, there, that further sense. You are sense creating 
You are creating your own healing, your own future. But, but the flip side of that is, you know, a, a drone operator in a trailer, you know, in Nevada, uh, who may not have that camaraderie beyond their small cell of, of, of pilots. Where does the VA, how are you approaching that, that challenge of remote operations, to use the title of our story from the contest, but, but you know, assuming, you know, to Elliot's point that we, we strive for a world in which we're not redeploying to fight the same, you know, to solve the same problem of violence again and again, but we've seen that from the past 15 years that, in fact, remote operations are increasing in terms of uh, being a tool of choice. I think that the VA has accepted that this is uh, post-traumatic stress, even though you're not in combat battle. I think the, the part that's difficult is that transition from DOD to VA uh, and the acknowledgement or the documentation that is required. But um, one of the things that we have, and I think it's one of the great legacies of the Vietnam War, is our vet centers, our readjustment counseling that does not require that you have uh, a discharge paper in order to be able to go into treatment. And all of the people uh, in the vet centers are, most of them, excuse me, are combat veterans themselves. And, and the newest generation, your generation, is coming in and, and being the healers there as well. I'd like to go down the panel and, and talk, uh, you know, from, from Max on down about if you could do one thing or two things to help the VA, to help the nonprofits kind of get ahead of the, the, the veterans' issues of the next uh, conflicts with what you, with, with the perspective that your work brings. Yeah, I, I think the trick, this is the trickiest thing to do, but it sort of ties in to a certain degree in what something Elliot was getting at um, that I think is really complicated is I think that uh, sort of young people growing up today who are under 18 have a radically different idea of what war is in their imagination. So the narrative. And uh, the narrative of war and even what the components of war are. Because like, they, they like, see more video, right? Like they've got you know, yeah, YouTube I mean, they can, and They whatever. can see it, but it's also more just that like you'd be astonished how little of like conventional maneuver combined arms warfare is a part of any narrative. I mean, that, right. that really is something of the history books if, if you're like a 12-year-old kid today who, who has, and I even mean like in the movies. You know, there's, there's um, a really interesting example is uh, I, I once was talking to like, you know, this, a, a group of um, 13 and 14-year-olds who were, it was mostly girls and one boy who were like not nerds about this stuff. And like, from their perspective, uh, sort of the intelligence community and the CIA was just as much a part of warfare as the military was. And of course, from their perspective, why shouldn't they think that, right? And, and sort of and what that meant for when and the terms under which violence should be used or when we should fight wars was something that um, really struck me. So like figuring out how to anticipate sort of uh, how the next generation is going to feel about the utility of force, who right. uses that force, the incentive structures of that force, I think is actually going to be really important all the way down to the VA because it sort of influences how people feel about the wars they are fighting, you know, and, mm -hmm. and sort of what those, that sense of purpose is and sort of what that means to them. And, and that's very hard to anticipate, but you asked me the magic question. Yeah. So. <laughs> One is I think the human connection is only more important as technology divides us physically further and further. 
from one another. And I think that that is sometimes seen as counterintuitive. But I think it, it makes it even more important to have somebody at the other end of a text or the other end of an email who is going to have a human interaction. Do, do you mean more um, like uh, intra-unit? So for example, your CSTs being able to reach out to each other in different absolutely. areas? Or is it back home to, to family, no, to No, actually, I think that back home to family can be, um, thank you, can be challenging. I think the immediacy of the back home to family is double-edged. I would let these folks who've actually served uh, in war, I've covered it, but I've never served in it, uh, talk about that. But from a lot of conversations I've had, that that is very uh, two-sided, that in sure. one hand it's great, and the other hand people will forget where you are and what it is that you're doing because Facebook message will go through or, you know. Um, but I think among one another, that technology is an enabler, it is not a replacer. And I think that is something that we have to keep in mind. I think the second thing is that our stories matter. Our stories must have a place for them, in, for the people who fight our wars, whatever they look like, whoever they may be, whether it's conventional or special operations or uh, agency. And it's definitely true when you talk to you know, people who are, watch, who are really into remote control everything that um, the intelligence side of it is, is sort of a native tongue for them as, as kids, or they think that it is. But I think that that's where storytelling matters. We're not passive observers to the narrative that is out there. You can shape it. Uh, and I think more people could shape it than ever, given what technology is allowing. And that is both, that's also double-edged. I think none of this is either purely good or purely bad. But we have to make a place for the very real people who are fighting our very real wars in our stories. Um, so I think I'm going to doggedly stick to my position that the best thing we can do for the VA is end slash win the wars. So how do you end slash uh, win the wars? You know, I think we sort of have a tendency when we start talking about the future of warfare, you know, and in those conversations to conflate the future of warfare with technology and technological improvements. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. And if you all will in, indulge me in a story, I'd, I'd like to just share an anecdote. Um, so I live in Turkey and Istanbul and do a lot of work uh, in the south of the country reporting on the Syrian civil war. And about two years ago, um, I was in Ghazi Antep, which is a city that's about 30 minutes from the border. Uh, and I was staying with some friends, one of whom was a, a Syrian fellow who was an activist during the revolution. And uh, he came home from doing some work. He does reporting on refugee conditions. And he came home one night to our little house where we were all kind of our crash pad we were staying. And he says, he's like, he speaks with a perfect British accent. He's like, Elliot, you know, I met a fellow today who I, I think you would find very interesting. And his name's Abed. And I said, oh, Abed, like, who is he? He said, well, he, he fought for Al-Qaeda in Iraq. But bear with me. I think you two would get along really well. <laughs> so I said, all right, Abed, that sounds good. And we basically sort of set it up that I was going to go meet him. And, you know, and, and um, you know, I do a lot of reporting. And the, the, basically the thrust of the story was going to be two veterans from the Iraq war sit down and talk about their war. But we fought on different sides. And... Um, and we couldn't really tell him that I'd been a Marine, at least at the outset. We thought that might spook him. So, you know, we basically, in the opening line of the piece was, you know, Abed and I agreed the night before we'd lie and tell him that I'd been a journalist. And so we went down, and basically it turned into this sort of five and a half hour, six hour lunch with the two of us talking all about the war, what we what we'd done, where we'd been. He had he was a Syrian guy who lived in Derazor, which is right on the border. And he basically, for about four years, smuggled uh, fighters and weapons in and out of Iraq. And so. Um, but specific to this question, as we were talking, 
you know, he kind of went all into the sort of the Salafist ideology about how there would be an end of days battle in Dabiq, which is, a, which is what, you know, all the guys in the Islamic State believe. It's a city in northern Syria, how, you know, the end of days was coming and the Mahdi would reveal himself. And, you know, I'm sort of taking these lazy notes. And he, I think he could see that I was kind of like, this is just bullshit. And, um, and he looks at me. He's like, what's the matter? He's like, you don't believe me? And I was like, no, no, you know, Mahdi end of days. I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And by the way, he's telling me all of this the fall of 2013. So this is before Ramadi fell, before Fallujah fell, before really the Islamic State or ISIS was on anybody's radar screen. And he, was, he basically laid out to me um, in a cafe in southern Turkey with much more precision and detail the future of warfare than you would have found at that moment in any think tank, I think, in Washington, D.C. He basically said exactly what was going to happen. Um, Iraq's going to get taken over by the Salafists. We're going to win. We're going to create our Islamic State. And as he saw me sort of taking my notes without giving him a lot of credence, you know, he basically said, you know, what's the matter? He's like, he's like, even Albert Einstein predicted all of this. He said that the third war would be a nuclear war, but that the fourth war would be fought with sticks and stones. He said, that's how we defeated you in Iraq. That's how we're going to create our Islamic State, with sticks and stones. So that always stuck with me. So I feel like we can talk about drone technology, exoskeletons, all we want. The guys we're fighting, the guys who, frankly, are handing it to us in the Middle East, are fighting us with sticks and stones and winning. If you go to Elliot's website, uh, he has written a story about that lunch. Yeah, which, or da- it's one of the best it's pieces so of war correspondent work. <laughs> He's too modest to admit yeah. it, but go to ElliotAckerman.com and, and uh, read yeah. my lunch. It's on the time. Daily Beast. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Schwartz? I, I think that what I would like to say is keep on fighting. Um, you know, VA is a reflection of the Congress. Congress is the one that actually decides and decides what we can fund and what we can do. And, in that, and another part of that is they tell us what we're going to do, too. Um, and whether we had the money or not, uh, that was left to our design. But the point being this, um, I, when I was reading, was it Toaster Town? Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you ever been to a state veteran's home? Anybody here? It's just like Toaster Town. That's where all the old uh, people who have no place to go. In Connecticut, we had 500 veterans. 300 of them were homeless. Nobody wanted them. Their families didn't want them. And we had chronic disease veterans. So the point being is that was that generation and taking care of them in that manner was the acceptable way to do it. That's not good enough. And you need to be the ones to say what it is that you think is good enough. And that you need to keep your eye on the ball. I think that's one of the driving forces uh, for, for my generation. We do not want the future. Now they are our children, by the way, and our, our nieces and nephews and so We want it better for them than we had. But at the same time, the, the VA and large institutions must learn to change, to keep pace with what is going on in the, in the world outside. And so we're not as clever as we think we are, but when you, you still have, and I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't get reported back, but <laughs> that I'm saying you have to be involved in the political force if you want the kind of care, if you want the kind of VA. It has to start with the people that are making those laws. And it has to, it has to I think one of the big things, 
what I was trying to say and probably missed the point was, yes, we opened the door so that you could be saying and doing these things, that it would be acceptable to hear what you had to say. That it wasn't, we were not looking to be riding into the valley of death with the 600, or that we weren't, you know, tap dancing uh, uh, across Europe. That war is serious business and it's dangerous. And when you think about it, you need to think about, and that's one of the best things that's going on right now, you have to think about the people the people that are going to war, that every life matters. So there are 58,000 names on the wall and nobody knows them all, but there's somebody in someone's family. But when we bring out the, what the real value, what really is happening in war, then, then and that every, every life matters, then peace. I'm gonna, that was a wonderful way to segue to the audience. We'll bring into the conversation. Uh, we have a microphone uh, that Adam, and Adam, you can raise your hand because Adam is one of the linchpins of our creative contest, by the way. He helped organize and run it, so I wanna thank him uh, as well for that. Uh, but we'll pass the mic around. Keep your question to a question, please, uh, and direct it to, to the panelists uh, as you see fit. Hi, thank you for very thoughtful and moving remarks. Uh, my name is Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services, and we work in peace building and conflict resolution. I was at a gathering at the US Institute of Peace and spoke to a military person who worked with people who work with drones and remote targeting. And he said very, very deliberately that people are trained to see the enemy as an impersonal entity and you target your <clears throat> mechanisms and they're gone. So clearly it's dehumanization and that enables them to do this work. And my question is, how do you rehumanize? And you talked about the importance of the community, those who have battled together and cried together and laughed together. Well, that's a small community that reinforces how do you take people beyond that support group and get them involved in the larger world, like troops to schools, I forget what it's called. A basic reintegration in civic life and an engagement with the world. Sure. We know from World War II that shell shock persisted, wasn't talked about but it transformed lives. So the, so in, the question in, on reintegration, how do we use beyond Given our the form, remote right. nature of warfare and the depersonalization right. that is powerful. I mean, Adelaide, please. You know, I, say, I think a lot has been written about the idea you know, of drones being this remote warfare and how the dehumanization of targeting people with drones kind of puts us into some area of moral hazard. So I think there's sort of two ways. I mean, there's two ways to look at that. I think dehumanization in war goes back. I mean, a long, long time from when, from when we you know we st when they stopped. You know, in the first or second world war, they noticed in the first world war people had a hard time shooting the targets because they were trained on zero targets. So they started making silhouettes. You know, and it's why you know you, soldiers have used sort of you know racial slurs to refer to their adversaries. It's, it's always that process of dehumanizing the other. And then we kind of talk about this idea of moral hazard, you know, dehumanizing conflict. Isn't it dangerous that the drone operator feels nothing? But, you know, again, I hope to not, you know, sound too much like a Cassandra up here. But, like, to me, you want to know, I think the greatest innovation that has caused moral hazard and dehumanization as it applies to our current set of conflicts? The all-volunteer force. The fact that 
such huge segments of our population walk around every day paying tax dollars that are continuing wars that they really aren't engaged with because we've put together a construct that nobody has to feel it at home. Uh, and that's everybody's responsibility. Everyone who's a citizen of the United States, that's your responsibility. And just like the Second World War was characterized by an all-volunteer military, by a real national mobilization, the Vietnam War by the draft, which we spoke about, these wars have been structured in a way so nobody has to feel them. All-volunteer military coupled with deficit spending. So to me, the big concern isn't that a drone operator doesn't feel it. It's that we as a country don't feel it when every single day you know, we are taking the fight out there, killing people overseas, and it's, it's all done in our names. All of it. Absolutely, and I just want to pick up on that. I mean, ignorance flourishes amid apathy, and we are a nation that is entirely ignorant of what we are asking people in uh, who are fighting wars that are fought in your name, whether you like it or not. And you know, I have, was talking about this, and I, I will say this here, um, particularly amid this audience. And please forgive me if I remotely offend you, but uh, I'll do it in person at least. Um, so. Uh, which is that the elites of this country have done precious little to narrow that gap between those who serve and everybody else. I have been in places like Silicon Valley and the Upper East Side of Manhattan and heard among the most ignorant things I've ever heard said about uh, the conflicts and who is fighting them, among incredibly educated people who read endlessly about topics which interest them. And I do not think as a citizenry that we should put it on those who serve only to reintegrate. It is up to us as a country to do better. And we have not asked ourselves not one iota to improve, to educate, to look around and, and have an opinion. It doesn't mean you need to be pro or anti-war, but you must be informed. So, so what would be the vehicles to do that? I mean, do you have uh, anything you want to throw out there that you like? Nonprofits that are doing good work? You know, yeah. uh, human conscience. Yeah. The most I mean, elemental? Yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, if you're, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you're asking people to do this in your name, just to be, in, be informed. I mean, I think that's the, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. That's the only thing I would ask as a, as a veteran is, Absolutely. You know, is care enough I mean, to El be informed Elliot, read a newspaper. Elliot said something to me maybe about a year and a half ago that I never forgot, which was sort of we were talking about the combination of deficit spending and an all-volunteer force. And, and I know he said this line before, but in this context where he was just like, look, like people are a product of their incentive structure, and that's it. And, and what was interesting to me about that is that, like, this is an intentional way this is set up. Yeah. Sure. Like, like the apathy is not some, you know, great yeah. mass psychological failure. Like, no, this is policy. This is, it was yeah. set up on purpose to allow to this avoid, to... avoid, I think, very much as a reaction yeah. to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. And, and one thing I would say is I wrote this piece a while back uh, when American Sniper was doing so in the theaters. If only Americans cared about their wars as much as they loved their war movies, right. we would be in a great position because... Think about how many people paid money to go see that film. This has nothing to do with that film in particular. But if people would spend two hours actually thinking through what it is uh, that is being done in their names, I think we would be in a very different place. But in some ways, and this is the danger of storytelling, I felt the same way when writing Ashley's War, is that we give people a vehicle for feeling like they've reckoned with the conflict, when all you want to do is be giving them a tunnel into the greater world. You don't want to be giving them the beginning, middle, and an end that will make them feel better and go back and feel, well, I, I know something now. I've, I've read this. It should be, you know, people wrote to me about Ashley's War. I got some people saying, this is so pro-war, I'm offended after your first book. And some people writing, this is so anti-war, I'm so offended. Uh, and I, I felt really good about that because my job was not as a storyteller, I think when this was not to answer every question, it was to make you ask questions. Right. 
And that, I think, is what we have stopped doing as a country. And I think our complacency is actually interfering with our ability to be good citizens. And that's a big hope of the, the project, if you will, if I can plug the Art of Future Warfare project, is to give people the right information to start asking questions about the way they relate to conflict, not just today, but of course in the future. Harlan, you have a question? Yeah. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman, Gail. Uh, great stories. I'd like to point out an interesting inversion, inversion here. Uh, we've been at war for nearly 15 years. And yet, if you discount the Spanish-American War and people who died of a disease, we've had the fewest number of casualties of any wars we've fought, despite the length. And yet, the reaction seems to be quite interesting in inverse proportion. But my question is this. We've talked about America. There are a lot of other countries who have been at war a lot longer than we have. The Vietnamese for 35 years, uh, the Afghans since, arguably since 1995, the Iraqis since 1980. What do you think the psychological effects have been on those societies on the wars, and what does that mean for us? I mean, this is what Elliot tackled in his book, I mean, to some extent. And yeah, I think it's been pretty devastating. I mean, by the Afghans, I'd say since 1979, so it's 36 years. You know, one of the things that's interesting in Afghanistan is the average life expectancy of an Afghan male living in the provinces is sort of late 50s, early 60s. So, um, so if you think about that, in Afghanistan right now, the generation that's sort of dying off, those people who are in their late 50s, early 60s, you know, they were in their early 20s in 1979 when the Soviets invaded. So there, if you meet most average Afghans, 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, for them, they can't remember what Afghanistan was like in peace. They have no adult memory of it. So when you start talking to Afghans and you're out there, you know, you're working in the service, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to win the war, you know, Afghanistan will be at peace. It's not like peace is returning to a previous convention, uh, condition which they remember. It's something that they're trying to just create completely out of whole cloth uh, in their imaginations. Uh, and so what happens to a society when you get to that point where nobody can even remember peace um, and, and war becomes the, the normal? Every um, story you tell is a war story. Right, right and every story countries. you tell at that point is a war story. And I think what's, what's interesting is I think you know, we are starting to get to that point. I mean, I, you know, I still sort of think of myself as like this you know, early 20s iteration <laughs> of me. Um, and then I meet someone who's actually in their early 20s, and I'm like, God, you were like four years old when I was like, geez, I can't believe it was that long ago that someone who was three years old when this happened could now you know, be an adult in front of me. But I think we're listing toward that place. I mean, and, you know, and if we look at our current foreign commitments, uh, it doesn't seem as though things are trending towards those being diminished anytime in the near future. So I don't really have an answer to your question, but I think it's affected profoundly the social fabrics of those countries. Uh, I think it's profoundly affected the social country, a fabric of our country. Um, and we'll see you know, who we become. I, I once, real quick, I once did this project where I had to invent a statistic that I called New York Times mentions per casualty, sort of over the last 80 years. And for everyone in this room born after 1945, it's amazing sort of how few people don't know what the costliest conflicts of their lifetimes have been, which the, the number, you know, the, the craziest where I, I did some work is the Second War of the Congo, which was a really big war, you know, a World War One scale war. And, and um, it's really fascinating talking to combatants who are just so angry, not even about policy, but about awareness. And that's always really sort of <laughs> worried me a little bit and sort of interested me, like sort of how, how much even sort of the perception of knowledge of a conflict could influence, sure. you know, possible quagmires down the road. 
The first book I did, Dressmaker of Karkana, was about a girl whose business supported her family under the Taliban. And it was about a whole group of young Afghans who had never lived in peace and still haven't. And you know what you find is real exhaustion and trauma amid a tremendous amount of hope. But recently, that hope, I mean, I'd say within the last year, um, has started to give way to I think more trauma and more fear that this is going to be simply an extension, not an ending, of the last conflicts. And it's not that people thought uh, that war was going to go away entirely, but the hope was for a low-grade conflict that around which normal life could still go on. And I think even that now is um, eroding in, in a way that is heartbreaking to see. We have time for one more question. Morning, Andrew Krause with the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. I want to kind of combine a few of the things that you said, and you know, it isn't just the VA that's a reflection of our Congress. Much of our foreign policy is also a reflection of Congress. So, how do we change, or at least frame, the narrative both here in D.C. and around the country that the prevention of armed conflict isn't necessarily a sign of weakness, but rather instead should be the highest means, um, you know, through our defense policy or our foreign policy, uh, should be everything that we try and work for through other means as well. Anybody want to take a crack at that? I can make a, <laughs> I mean, I can make a plug for, yeah. for, for the role that narrative plays, that, that storytelling plays, that you know, keeping a population informed isn't no longer uh, a reliance on the evening newscast, you know, but it's embracing fiction, it's embracing art, uh, that we have actually a lot of good works out there. It's a matter of convincing people it's worth their time to engage them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily see uh, an easy answer, but I think at the, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our Congress is a reflection of us as a country, and how we and how we project ourselves abroad is also a reflection of us. And you know, I think right now, unfortunately, you know, the reality is that we are a country that domestically feels, I think, in many respects, at peace. Um, whereas if you go overseas, we are seen as a country that is actively at war overseas. I just want to say that I had the opportunity uh, just a few months ago that uh, Congress uh, decided to acknowledge the service of those who served during the Vietnam era, all of us. And they had a program at the, um, at the hall in, 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 in Congress, and, uh, and no veterans spoke, only politicians. And it didn't really matter what they were saying. All of us veterans are out there saying, that's nice. Welcome home does not cut it anymore. Thank you for your service. That is almost like an I am on your side. We have to, we have to challenge the notion. You know, um, one, of the, one of the things about the, the uh, I have had the opportunity several times because my, my research was in Agent Orange. And so I have been to a Vietnam several times to talk with the Vietnamese. And I have to say one thing, your question, I would like to answer that. Uh, of course, this is like 1992-95, and we are there, and we are, we are having a dinner with our former enemies, and they get up to give us a toast, and this is what they said. We admire you Americans, because you did not come to enslave us, like the Chinese, like the French, like the Russians. You came for a belief 
and you left. You left us. And so we will always respect you for that. But one of the other parts of that is, is that the normalization of trade with Vietnam, the North and the South are much better than they were back then. And the people that are living in Vietnam now, most of them were not living during the war. But they have a very positive, um, they have more freedom than they have ever had in their entire history. It may not be our freedom that we call freedom. We cannot write a check to Iraq or Afghanistan and say, here's your freedom. It is something that they have to have an opportunity to develop for themselves. And so for Vietnam, I think we're doing pretty good. But that's 50 years. I think we're going to call time on the event. We've run a little bit over. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming, first of all. Thank our panelists for sharing their time, sharing this really insightful conversation with us. To support the authors, uh, to talk more with them, I'm going to have them actually leave the stage first so they can go to the tables out in the lobby, not because we're trying to shoot them out of here, but they'll be signing their books, which I encourage you to pick up and take home because it is actually still nice to have a real paper book, <laughs> especially one inscribed to you or uh, to someone you know. Uh, again, let's give a round of applause to our, to our <laughs> panelists.